Silks, you're listening to the Expecting Aerialist podcast. Hey, podcast listeners. So excited to be able to offer you guys this new free gift. On my website, I've got a new mini course by Wrap Your Head Around Silks. It's 10 chapters, some great little pieces of advice, and I cover a bunch of diverse topics. And that's free for you guys. Basically, you go to the link in the show notes, and it's really easy all you have to do is register for a login to the student portal. You'll have access and you can take all the course for free on me. Hope you guys take advantage of that. And let's get started with podcast today. Today, I'm so excited to have my friend Erica Lintz on the pod. You might have seen her in Ka, Cirque du Soleil, in Las Vegas as the Dua Straps artist. She was one of the creators of that act and did it in Vegas for more than eight years. Her and her partner now reside in LA and she tells the story of her miscarriage throughout the pandemic. It is a really gut-wrenching yet beautiful story. And just to warn you guys before you go into this, it'll be the second half of the podcast where we really deep dive and get really serious and, you know, you might need to sit down. So without further ado, let's get started. I can't really recall when I ever met you, Erica. I don't know if you can. I think that we are just of the of the JJ's family that we have yeah. trained mostly in the same spaces, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure we've actually ever worked together, but we have trained next to each other countless times. Yeah, I would be in the gym. I teach a lot of silks, so I'd be teaching or training. Erica would be doing anything like uh, hand-to-hand Lots of handstands, I feel like, and getting pulled with a wire and working with props. You do a lot of things. Yeah, I feel like we You're all- very multi-talented. Ooh, thank you. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, I feel like yeah. LA kind of demands you to step outside of your specialties and into a willingness to learn and do your very best for whatever the next gig is. It definitely is an enemy to my perfectionism. And in a lot of ways, that has been a really good thing for me, uh, even if a little bit, a little bit less, um, a little bit less control than you have in an environment like Cirque du Soleil and some of the other kinds of work that I've done. Yeah. So Erica, the worldwide Circus family probably knows you from Ka and from also you did the film, Cirque du Soleil's film, correct? I did. Yeah, I was the lead character in Cirque yeah. du Soleil Worlds Away. Yes, lead character in that and then um, was in this, the straps. Is it is it the straps duet that opens the show or is the first thing that I can remember from the show? Am I remembering that right? The straps duet in Ka is somewhere... Right smack, like 45, 50 minutes in, uh, something like that, or maybe an hour. I don't remember the show very well then, <laughs> but I do remember that act. So, um, yeah, so I had heard about 
Erica a lot before I think I actually like started seeing you and stuff just because our our worlds are not big. Yeah, very Um, intimate little universe. I feel like when it comes to circus, she's really done it all. And then she's got a story to tell when it comes to the other side of this podcast, which is a, is the motherhood slash pregnant prenatal um, story. Sure do. I'm going to let you kind of tell us if you could, your story, maybe chronological is the best because I don't actually know. There's a lot of gaps in my knowledge about what I know about your career. Okay. We want to start with, uh, with cartwheeling for money that part of the story? Yes. Yeah. I want to, I want to know how you ended up in Vegas and you know, all of that. Well, I was born in Colorado and, uh, I am first off for anybody who doesn't know me, hasn't met me in person. I am a tiny person. Uh, I'm under five feet tall and just like quintessential gymnast body. So I was a gymnast, competitive gymnast for 11 years. And kind of while I was doing that, I was also involved in vocal music. And that kind of led to theater because I was this tiny little kid who could do flips and sing songs. So I kind of ended up on stage and things like, you know, like the Colorado Opera Festival, um, where I would do some backflips out on stage and the soprano opera singer would sing a few things and they'd, you know, be like, wow, that tiny person uh, can do flips. And that was kind of how I ended up um, moving from just athletics into the performing arts. Uh, so that was cool. And then, uh, and then I was a rebellious punk rock teenager for a minute. And then the day after I graduated high school, I flew out to Vegas and I ended up with an opportunity to audition for Cirque du Soleil, which at that time, uh, at the time was just the two shows in Vegas, uh, O and Mystere. So it was a much smaller enterprise back then. And they had just found oh, out. Oh, wow. What year was that? That was, yeah. I graduated 2001. So we are, I'm 20 years deep oh, now. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Kind of wild. Um, so it's been a hell of a ride. It's been amazing. Um, but definitely, definitely a journey. And it's been pretty cool to watch the landscape change from the inside. So I started with Cirque when it was a still, you know, there were just like a hundred and 50 of us in Vegas at the time. And now there are so many more, there's so much more talent that has come in. Um, but that was a wild time for sure, because, um, I was one of, I think like eight Americans in the show. I was also 19. I had just turned 19 when I got the contract Wow! and uh, that show had been open since 1993. So there were only two of us who were under 21 and the other one was from Russia, didn't speak English. So I was kind of tried by fire on my own a little bit. Um, just praying to work hard enough to be good enough to deserve to be there. Cause uh, I felt like uh, I had some growing to do if I was going to be able to contribute anything over there. So um started there as a character. I understudied the main clown and did really just like one tumbling pass, like gymnastics and my acrobatic background was pretty secondary to my first circus job. Eventually I left. Um, I have this tendency to always want to be challenged and growing. <laughs> so mm-hmm. So how long did you, how long did you stay in that first gig? First gig, I was there, uh, 2001 to the, the end of 2001 to the end of 2004. So about three years, sweet little teenage rock and roller dropped off in Vegas with no parental supervision. So that was definitely, Oh, I can imagine my parents had some nerves about that, but, um, you know, like I said, it's been 20 years and I'm still here. So everything turned out. Okay. Wait, do you have like a wild story to share from that time? Oh man. Like that, that time is a wild story (laughs) for sure. 
Give us an example of what you mean by that. Like just partying? Um, I mean, to a degree, honestly, I actually, when I said I was a rebellious teenager, I got the worst of it kind of out of the way um, as as an adolescent in wild Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, so by the time I got to Vegas, I actually, you know, I was really serious as a heart attack about wanting to to belong there about being good enough to be there and rising to the occasion and contributing something. So I wasn't that rowdy. Also, mind you, I am tiny. And so I was 19 and I looked even younger. Um, but around that time, uh, once I, you know, had access to places I wasn't supposed to be, meaning literally everywhere because it's Vegas and everything is 21 and up because of all the gambling. Yeah. But at that time it was very much like, um, there were so few of us in Cirque du Soleil and it was just becoming a household name. People were just starting to understand how to pronounce it and what it was. Um, this is kind of the era when it was starting to be aired on Bravo and all of that. And so we were very much like your Cirque ID was sort of a passport to wherever you might want to go. So you could just walk up to any, oh. any club in Vegas and show your Cirque ID at the VIP line. And there's a really good chance that you were just going to be given a table and a bottle. Uh, so we just had a lot of access. We had a lot of access to kind of whatever Vegas had to offer and yeah, lots of late nights for sure. And the other thing too, is I was young, like Vegas royalty. Yeah. Kind of. That was totally the scene. That was totally the scene. And we had such a cool, Okay. I mean, it was such an interesting, cool time in Vegas too. Like there was this, this moment in time that Vegas tried this family friendly thing. And then it sort of transitioned into the more like chic artsy nightlife. And we were very much a popular accessory to that. Um, and you know, like I was also this awkward kid, like with bandanas in my hair and all of that, I was far, far less glamorous than most of the people I was hanging out with. Um, but they loved all these beautiful dancers and acrobats and artists, uh, and had a tendency to welcome us wherever. And then I was basically this wild little teenager, just tagging along, trying to be cool enough to be there. <laughs> so that was the first few years. Uh, then eventually I, Left, I poked around. Actually, at one point at that time, had thought about moving to LA, had uh, partially come down here. That plan ended up falling through. And then I got called for Caw, which was, um, which had opened. And I guess I had been in Vegas when it opened. I had left then and then came back as kind of the first round of like of replacements. And they were doing some tweaks to the show. So initially I was uh, swinging, like understudying the principal character, the female twin and doing kind of like the stunt double stuff, like the harness work and the high flying stuff for her. And then eventually uh, they decided to make some changes and moved toward creating the aerial straps duet. And that was a really cool and challenging and trial by fire time for me as well. My partner and I were part of the original creation for that. So that was cool. That's really where I became specifically an aerialist and specifically a specialist in duo straps. Um, so that was pretty cool. So can I ask you, yeah. were you doing, when did you actually start doing aerial for that gig? Um, or were you doing aerial before that? Sort of depends, right? So <laughs> as a wily teenager, we had a rope swing, you know, literally like a rope around a tree over a creek. And I had a tendency to do some pretty wild stuff on that that other people just didn't seem oh. to be able to do. So I had basically a okay. clue that, you know, that I would potentially be good at this stuff. But mind you, like when I was growing up, aerial wasn't a thing. Like nobody knew what that was. Yeah. The only people who had ever seen a harness at that point were rock climbers. And, and that was kind of that. So I joined Cirque. I joined Cirque really like as a gymnast principally. 
uh, a gymnast with a theater background. And then in Mystere, I had to do some harness work in a variety of things, but really more, you know, not so much elegant acrobatic harness stuff, more like special effects kind of stuff. Mm, okay. So it was really Ka where I ended up picking up like actual aerial and more traditional aerial like straps. Man, was that stressful to do aerial like that seriously? You know, like a gig like that and then be training for that job? Wildly, wildly stressful. Um, I think that there is, there's such a difference in kind of my generation, like those who came up in say early 2000s or the 90s in contemporary circus uh, versus what the uh-huh. experience is now, because we literally, there was another duo, they were a Russian team and they were creating their duet for straps. And my partner and I, he was Quebecois and uh, I'm American and we were creating ours and it was a preference uh, for the other team that we didn't do anything that they'd done. And I, of course, had never done duo straps in my life. So we, we didn't mm, have, wow. there was no Instagram to, you know, look up hashtag aerial straps duo. So you had to create everything, you know, every grip that we did the first time that I started hanging from his neck, you know, we had to get that approved by by coaching and this and that and the rigging department, eventually they had to fly somebody in from, you know, Cirque du Soleil headquarters who had been in China to approve the fact that, you know, this was not too sketchy for us to do. Um, So there was so much when I look back at some of our original offerings, uh, they seem incredibly simple, but when, when you're building everything from scratch, you have to do all of the experimentation yourself and all of the failures, um, are yours to work through and make discoveries through and then, you know, iterate on until you come up with something that's a valuable, b repeatable um, and C entertaining. Hopefully I would consider straps like, <laughs> like very far down the line of a apparatus that I would want to get on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just because, you know, it's not easy. So obviously you had the strength of a gymnast, but I mean, that is so intense. Like, it's not like you're starting on an easy apparatus. No, definitely not. And then what was that like? It was super hardcore. Um, It was super hardcore specifically in my situation because the timeline was very short. Uh, The expectations were, you know, were high. The necessity for us to come through and be able to pull this off was, was really high. And it was also public. You know, I had to do this. I had to do this in the training room in front of, you know, all the other professional acrobats that I worked with. And they were watching me struggle. They were watching me fail. They were watching us prop a video camera up on a shoe and try to, you know, this is again before, before iPhones. Yeah. So we really, we didn't have a lot of tools at our disposal at the time and it was pretty rough and getting the strength up for it. Uh, there was a Russian guy who actually ended up being my partner in the film, Igor Zeripov, who was raised in a circus family that literally like, they would put like nails under him um, when he was doing conditioning to dissuade him from falling. Wow. Just like really traditional, hardcore, old school, seventh generation circus. And that was kind of the attitude. So he was having me uh, do some conditioning and he would say things like, you know, do this 10 more times. And I'd say, you know, you're kidding. And he'd be like, yes, funny joke. No, do it. And I would get up and he would, <laughs> the last thing that he would have me do is like, just hold on to some rings for a minute. You know, when I was completely exhausted and my hands were starting to kind of cripple into shape from being um, just flexed beyond what my strength was able to sustain. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, I would hold and hold and hold and it would be 45 seconds and I'd slip down to my fingers and then I'd fall off and he'd tell me to get up and do it again. Um, and it was wow. hard. I mean, it was super, super hard. And there were definitely times that, you know, I, I literally had to sustain people laughing at me when I was failing and all of that. But, um, it was an important part of a growth process. And if there's anything that's going to do for you, it's going to keep you eternally humble. Let you know that your tenacity is something that you can lean on when your ego isn't going to be there for you. I cannot imagine what that must have felt like to be like for all these people to be watching you and you're at Cirque du Soleil headquarters or wherever. And obviously the people around you are very, very qualified to be doing whatever they're doing. That would feel so stressful to me. Definitely is. And it definitely, it definitely was challenging. And most certainly there was a lot of times that, you know, it brought up every insecurity that I had. And, you know, I have certainly cried from frustration and embarrassment um, a number of times throughout my career in similar situations. Um, But I find that a huge part of our career is just learning how to learn fast. Um, learning Mm -hmm. how to accurately assess your abilities so that you can deliver for opening night um, realistically from wherever you're at and just learning how to accept the fact that you don't have enough control to be perfect. Um, And that no matter how much training you have, every job that you show up on is probably going to require something of you that you aren't perfect at. And that sucks. Um, but it's also a really great fountain for growth. I think that both as a person and as an artist getting challenged in that way, um, will change and shape you for the better if you can, if you can sustain the discomfort of it all. Yeah. I struggle with a lot because (laughs) my, my weakness is strength. Hmm. Like my body doesn't build muscle well. I'll build and then I'll tighten up and it will take me a really long time to like get it back to like Mm -hmm. the length it should be again and then just go do one training session and it happens again. It's very frustrating. And whenever I'm on jobs and my strength isn't as much as I want it to be, yeah, I really, I really struggle with that. So that really, um, that really resonates with me. I super understand Um, that, except my plague is grace. Um, that I think ah, okay, for, you know, coming from a hardcore gymnastics background, like, we, we grew up finishing trainings with a hundred pull-ups and 10 rope climbs without legs. And that was just the nature of the beast is that strength was so ingrained. Um, but grace was not, you know, I, I was born with the grace of a Mack truck and I had to work really hard to get to a point where that wasn't so glaring. And mm. it's always interesting because my career, as I moved, as I moved toward, um, more like design directing and choreography I ended up working with more and more dancers and getting to understand you know the blessings of what that is to be able to go up into the air and be beautiful on the very first day um, but also um, you know trying to support people through the process of of understanding that strength does come slowly but feeling like feeling like there are two sides of a coin that's quite beautiful either way that you toss it um, yeah but you're you're gonna get humbled and frustrated one way or another either you're going to be able to do the tricks but you're gonna look you know like a brick being flung about through the air initially Um, (laughs) or you're going to be a beautifully simply spinning orb that isn't going to be able to go upside down for a while yeah you know I feel like (laughs) I feel like you know there's that strength test for Cirque du Soleil Mm -hmm. what is it called again there's a name for it Uh, currently 
Currently, I think it's PCAs, physical capacity assessment, yes. but we also, back yeah. in the day, it was called baseline, baseline testing. For sure, I wouldn't pass that test on a regular day. Like I would need to, to train for a long time to pass that type of mm-hmm. test. And I feel like that's the baseline and then everything else is after that, right? So that's where I struggle mentally with it. I'm just like, well, as an aerialist, I should be baseline a certain strength, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then all my other skill sets should be over and above that. It's like extra. But, you know, I'm a dancer first. So when you talk about your Achilles heel being, you know, grace, I'm like, oh, I'm not even worried about that for myself. But I got all these other things that I worry about. So it's just so interesting talking to other really successful artists because I think we forget that other people have whatever that thing is for themselves. Like even, even you. Every last one of us does, right? Like every last one of us has yeah. that thing and I have many of them. You know, I have a number of them. And one thing that always crops up is the fact that, you know, people, people don't always understand that if you come from a dance background, there's a really great chance that you spent hundreds or thousands or 10,000 hours in a studio growing up perfecting microscopic movements. And yes. So for you, you know, for you, ballet posture is incredibly natural. Um, And for me, it absolutely is not. But you know, like if you throw me from a ledge and I have to land on my hands, I'm probably not going to die, which is great news for me. (laughs) It leaves us in a position where sometimes people don't understand the fact that I didn't spend 10,000 hours in a dance studio and that you didn't spend 10,000 hours learning how to do backflips. And a lot of times people will say things like, oh, like you're a circus performer. Great. Well, I need you to do this and then a hand balancing act and then do some contortion. And then I want you to come over here and juggle and then whatever. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, totally. You know, I can deliver between one and three of those things, only one of them probably very well. (laughs) Yeah. Like let's have lower expectations, please. That's what I would like to put on a Mm t-shirt for myself half the time. (laughs) It's a trick. It's a complexity to our work because, uh, you know, the, the novelty of what we do is such a blessing in that people want to see it. They don't understand it. That's why it's so exciting. It seems, it seems, you know, otherworldly or like something that isn't really reachable or accessible. And obviously we know it is, it's just a great deal of training and time invested. Um, but at the same time, that often means that our clients don't quite understand what we do or what that process looks like or, or what's needed to get from the vision through execution safely and with an ability to consistently replicate it for an audience. And that ends up meaning that we have to, you know, be great at our jobs physically, but we also have to be able to, to navigate some complexity socially and how to explain quite gently that like, yes, I know that you want something that looks like it's straight out of Cirque du Soleil, but we have four hours to do it. And, you know, and we don't have the equipment and it's not, possible to do that. But hey, let me offer you this fantastic alternative. It's going to make your dreams come true. Oh, you're such a great businesswoman too. That's what I love about you, Erica. So, so let me go back. So how this is, I don't know this. How long did you do that role in Ka? How long did I do that role in Ka? I feel like it was in Ka for, I mean, for a long time, for like eight years. And in during that time, I did a number of roles. Um, obviously I did straps the majority of that time. Um, and I was also, uh, building a nonprofit, which was interesting because I didn't want to sleep, I guess, ever in Vegas. So I was there forever. Apparently. And then uh, eventually I went okay. freelance, um, which was great. That's when I moved to LA. That's when I kind of popped into your world. So we started orbiting all the same circles. 
Uh-huh. Did a bunch of performing there over time, just finding basically as a response to clients who who wanted really cool aerial things but didn't necessarily understand the process. I ended up doing more aerial coordination, then I ended up doing more aerial choreography, then I ended up doing more aerial design. Um, and then I ended up uh, getting really interested in the technology and running aerial departments, including kind of like the automations and technical elements. Ah, okay. I didn't know this. Let me, let me go in chronology though. When did the film come around? Ooh, that came out in 2012. And you moved to LA before that? I did actually. I moved here end of 2011. I think we finished uh, this is all quite some time ago now, but I feel like we finished shooting it in 2010. Um, I stayed, I did another year in Ka after we finished that. Um, and I had already kind of been winding down my time there. Then I moved to LA. I was here for the better part of a year before the movie came out. Um, okay. And then I went off and toured the world, kind of doing the PR for that for a while. And how does one book that role? Because there must have been a lot of competition for that role. I'm honestly, there had to have been. Yeah. I don't know that there was because I think it was such a specific thing. By the time that I became aware of it, um, it had already been narrowed down to just a few of us. I see. Okay. They had such a specific thing that they were looking for and it was going to be such a, like a rapidly adapting situation. It was something that was going to change every day that you needed somebody who could who could roll with the punches in a lot of ways. And also, you know, they had, they had toyed with the idea of bringing in like a Hollywood actress and, you know, stunt doubling the aerial in the circus. And at the end of the day, they felt like that would really not be appropriate for what they were trying to achieve, which was they had every intention to show all of the wires. They just wanted to be able to, to show things more intimately or from angles that you couldn't experience in the theater and that kind of a thing. So it became important to them to use an authentic acrobat. Um, And that was kind of that. So, you know, I was just sort of notified that this project was coming up and that they were, um, that they were looking for somebody to play this main character. And I know that I came in several times and did, you know, camera tests. And then I was put with a partner and had to do a bunch of strange sort of acting exercises and whatever. And I think that that was happening in a few different places. I know there were at least three of us, um, at that point who went through that process. And at the end of the day, it was like, I got a phone call that asked me to be at a fitting. Um, and I hadn't actually been told that I'd booked the role. That's sort of how I found out. Doing the film, was that life-changing or was that just another kind of branch of what you were already doing? Combo pack. It was a, okay. It was a lot of things. The number one thing that jumps to mind is pressure. Okay. Yeah. You know, at this point I had been with Cirque du Soleil, for the entirety of my adult life. So this was my family, my community, like my culture and sort of everything that I knew. And I lived in this world full of incredibly gifted, disciplined people. And pretty much everybody around me is the very best at what they do from where they're from. Like every single one of them is like that person from their hometown that was just extraordinary at contortion or extraordinary at this thing or this amazing singer or like the dancer that made it from their studio or whatever that was, right? And it didn't feel like there was any possible way, you know, to represent them to the level and capability that they deserved. And that felt incredibly intimidating because these are the gaggle of the most talented people in the world and you love them you know, and they feel like family to you and you just don't want to let them down. So 
there was definitely a lot of that, but they were super embracing. I think more than anything, they were just, they were happy and supportive that, you know, that it was a family member um, who was in that situation instead of bringing in somebody from the outside. So I didn't really get to see much of anybody. Did you feel that way because you felt like you had to represent everyone with that role? Yeah, I think literally it ended up being a thing where, you know, like I went to the Tokyo International Film Festival and um, I was on the poster and I walked the red carpet. You know, actually, I didn't walk it. I rode in an automated upside down umbrella that I was steering, trying not to crash into like the premiere of Japan. Wow. Um, and this was like the 25th anniversary of this film festival. And I think like the 10th or something had been Avatar was the opening film and we were the opening film for this. So it was very much like a lot of the responsibility there was was being the face and being responsible for for talking about this thing that all of us had put a tremendous amount of work in. You know, they had to deconstruct so many parts of the theaters to allow the camera equipment in. People had to work on their days off from shows to come in and shoot and whatever, and then come back and do shows all week. And it felt like, it felt just super, super, super important to me to get it right and to do them justice. And you know, that's definitely me. I've always had that kind of ambassador mentality that if you get a referral for a job, then while you're at that job, it's like you're wearing the person who referred you's name tag. Like you are representing them. Your actions are representing them. And I think I definitely carried that with me in a pretty intense way through that whole process. Wow. Okay. Wow. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine, you know? It was sort of a lot, but then at the same time, right? Like, yeah. You know, so you have this experience where you get to Tokyo and all that they know is, you know, this is the, this is the star of the Paramount movie for the opening film or whatever. So like the staff for the hotel is like lined up in front of the Ritz Carlton. And then they show you up to the corner suite and there's like gifts and all of the restaurants, like the chefs come out and they know your dietary restrictions and like recognize your face. And it's just this weird, surreal situation. Um, but as soon as you get home, like at the time I had, I had cats and like you get home and the cat has still pooped just in front of the litter box, you know, like nothing really changes. (laughs) I resonate with that. You know, you come off of a huge tour Mm -hmm. and then you're back in LA and you are unemployed, (laughs) you know, it's like no job. Absolutely. And you had just done arena tour and arena tour and you're like, okay, well, this is humbling. Mm -hmm. All the time, but that is freelance, right? Like that is kind of a career as an artist and it's really important. I don't know. I think I had the opportunity early on because I came in and I was young and I was in an established show for my first, you know, for my first big rodeo. So I got to witness right off the bat people whose identities were completely caught up in being circus performers um, or people who hadn't been prepared to make a transition that their body was demanding them to make, you know, basically there's a timestamp that you can't do this forever. Um, and there are people that either prepare for that and start to develop their interests in other directions. Um, and there are people that don't. And from the beginning I was witnessing both. And I knew, I knew from the beginning that if you get to a point that all of your self-worth is caught up in what you're doing professionally and if you are booking jobs and if your movie's successful, if you're getting good reviews, if you book that gig or whatever, um, it's going to leave you wildly unstable, you know? And the truth is most of the time, it's not really about you. It's about, you know, what the vision is and 
do you fit the profile? And very rarely is anybody, like in my case, like uh, what we're really looking for is a child-sized woman with hair like a boy that can do a lot of flips. Like that doesn't come up very often. <laughs> so <laughs> if I tried to, to, you know, stake my self-esteem on how often somebody was looking for that, I'd probably not be in a very good position. Um, so it ends up just being that, you know, you got to be grateful for the adventures that you get out of it yeah, and try to be a person that you like, try to be a person that you respect uh, as you navigate this whole world. Um, Cause talent is important, but even when it comes to business, like integrity is tops. If people like working with yeah. you, if you solve problems, yeah. if you're not a dick, whereas if you tromp around with a great big ego and you're a pain in the ass to work with, or you're dangerous or you're chaotic, then like yeah. nobody wants you there. I also feel like, man, the community that we are blessed with because of what we do is just such a cherry on the top of the very complicated pie that we're all in. Just being, you know, when I started this podcast, it has, it has changed my life because I hear other people's stories and it's just, it's more complex than I ever thought it was. You know, everybody, you think somebody has it all or hasn't made in the shade. Mm -hmm. And then their experiences are so different than what you would imagine. So yeah, I'm really grateful to be in the position where, you know, people are telling me their stories and it's, it's incredible. I think that's awesome. I think that's a really important gift too, that I think part of the reason, you know, it's all so intense and we, we fail in public, we succeed in public, we're larger than life or we're panned in the media or whatever it is. It is an interesting thing, you know, when you are your product, when your body is your product, when your action is your product, it's really easy. Yeah. Uh, to get caught up in that world. But there also is kind of a prophylactic around that where so much of our jobs, so much of our work requires us to put on makeup, put on costume, play a role. And even to a degree when you're doing that as a real person, there's a sense of, you know, putting on a hat, like that even when you're doing media, sure, you're being an authentic version of yourself, you know, coming on a podcast, sure, you're being an authentic version of yourself, but you're also putting on a hat that's like, hey, you know, I'm here as a professional. I think that being able to slip in and out of roles is is a valuable skill um, for how you navigate this really complicated world of ours. And I think it's really important that people understand the industry isn't all rainbows and sunshine, but that it is also incredible. Um, it's just a matter of what you're willing to trade and what you're willing to give. Are you passionate enough about this that you're willing to miss every Christmas, you know, and every birthday and every this and every that and have your life determined by a tour schedule? Um, do you love it that much? Um, and if you don't, then that's super important to know. You know, it's super important to to make the choices that are right for you. And also definitely to recognize that somebody's accomplishments by no means determine their level of happiness or joy or balance or health um, in what they're doing. Yeah. Erica, you have a journey with your own, your own personal journey on the trying to have a family mm -hmm. side of it. Um, I would love to hear whatever you want to share about sure. it. Sure. All right. Buckle up folks. It's kind of a three part tale. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm ready. Let's start with the beautiful part. Um, so I started in professional circus 20 years ago and I think I've done something the better part of 5,000 performances for Cirque du Soleil. And I've literally filled my passport, uh, 
and had to get new ones because of all of the adventures around the globe and all of the cool things I've gotten to do and see and all of that. Um, the other thing too, is that being an artist is this like passport between classes where, you know, you get to go to galas, but you also get to attend all these things that are in the underground and whatever. Like I had an amazing 20 years, uh, doing all of that. And that kind of left me in a place that I, you know, I struggled with the same reality. I think a lot of women do, and that's not at all just related to acrobats and those of us with physical jobs, but first off time, you know, that I, I'm in my late thirties now. And if you Uh want to have a family and if you do want any part of a traditional life, um, at some point it's going to have to compete with, um, with your remaining acrobatic years or maybe wherever you are in your career, you know, you've just gotten promoted to partner at your law firm and it would be inconvenient to be pregnant at this time. Um, that's definitely a reality that crops up right around the time that you have to start making very conscious decisions. Uh, so for me, that was very conscious, you know, it was very consciously coming up that, oh, if I do not actually intentionally have a family, uh, then I might wake up one day and, and realize that opportunity has passed. So I started dating mm-hmm. this wonderful person, uh, my partner, and it was super cute. Uh, I was in LA briefly and I ended up going back to Cirque du Soleil. The person who had replaced me had some injuries and I came in to help out for a year while they, while they figured out what was going to be next, which is super, super fun, by the way. So I went back to Cirque. I moved away from my partner on Valentine's Day. And the next 51 weeks, he drove 600 miles every week to come and see me in Vegas. And that was super sweet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So super great for me to to just know that I have a partner who shows up, which was awesome. And we were falling madly in love and realizing that we were going to need to get to the same city. So at the end of the day, Cirque du Soleil asked if I was... Uh, was willing to stay permanently. And I very, very much wanted to, but for the first time I decided that I was going to prioritize the more traditional things in life. And uh, my partner and I really wanted a family. So we had this agonizing series of months where he would come out on the weekends and there were just so many tears and so much anxiety because one of us was going to have to leave our, you know, our dream job, basically our career that we had been in for 20 years. Both of us, uh, both of us started our careers right out of high school. He makes video games. Wait, he makes video games and he, his job was in LA. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. We had a, a desert between us that we got to navigate every week, but you know, my dog and I got really good at flying on Thursdays. He got really good at driving on Saturdays and we found a way to make that work. But the way it was going to shake out is that his video game, uh, he makes Call of Duty and that happens in three year cycles where uh, there's three different studios that do it. Every year, Call of Duty game comes out. So uh, every three years is just like insane, insane year for them. Uh, And it became necessary. Basically, we weren't going to be able to do 600 miles of driving. Uh, Let's skip to the part that you want to hear, which is eventually... um, you know, he was willing to leave if I wouldn't, but we thought it would be smarter to bet on the engineer's brain than the acrobat's body. So I <laughs> moved back to LA and, um, and we did about a year here where I was traveling and I was working internationally about six months of the year. Um, and then the pandemic hit and thank goodness that we chose to follow his career instead of mine. Cause Cirque du Soleil would not have been a great bet during that period of time. Um, 
we were planning on getting married. Our first wedding was canceled to COVID. Uh, and then we decided we would just do things out of order and uh, try to start a family. So we did all the stuff um, and we had just started, you know, like tanky temperatures and charting things and, you know, learning yeah. about the TTC process. For those of you who are not in the know, that's trying to conceive. And if you hang out there too long, oh. your whole world becomes acronyms. Did you not know that? Okay. I didn't know that. Let's do a quick glossary. So TTC is uh, <laughs> is trying to conceive. Uh, BBT okay. is your basal body temperature. Uh, POAS is peeing on a stick. And uh, this goes on and on and on. <laughs> there are many things to learn. So we started. You know, it's really that. funny that I have this podcast because I know very little about anything around pregnancy, getting pregnant, being a mom, you know? I mean, it seems like you know a few things. It's worked out for you. No, it's just, you know, it's fine. It's just like, I just, I laugh because you don't need to know all that stuff to be the person who helps other people share their story. Absolutely. So it's okay. In fact, it's great. But I learn new stuff every day. It just, yeah, in fact, it's great. Yeah, it lets you come from a place of curiosity, which is such a good place to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very curious. So, okay. So I didn't realize that this whole story was so recent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I did not know that. Okay, please continue. So, yeah. And with that, let's do the, uh, oh, we'll, we'll do the disclaimer that, um, that it's still really raw. And so it's actually, it feels a little bit dangerous to talk about it, but I, I believe in being brave. I also believe that I believe that it is unhealthy for everybody that talking about stories like mine, which PS, if you haven't picked up on it yet is one of child loss, miscarriage and heartbreak for us to not discuss that is a huge disservice. And to be in a situation, especially like in a niche community, like acrobats and aerialists, um, it's different for us. I mean, there are things that come up for us that do not come up for other people. And by God, like we need to be able to talk about it. And it would be really helpful for those who are going through it if they didn't feel like it was such a taboo. So, so let's do this. Yeah. And you are, and you're super brave. And I am in awe of you, not even knowing the details of the story yet, but yeah. well, thank you. So it's kind of three parts. Mm -hmm. so I'll give you the first section. And then uh, if you have any questions and then we'll do two and three. So section one, uh, we decided that we would go ahead and start a family. It actually, for us, we got pregnant right away. Like it was a beautiful surprise. It was literally the first month that I was supposed to pee on a stick on a schedule and I did it and we got a positive and, you know, we were so happy and, and all of that. And so this was pandemic time, which was a really interesting set of circumstances. Cause remember what it was like when we had very little information about what the realities of COVID-19 yeah. were. But what we do know is yeah. that being pregnant leaves you immunocompromised. Um, unfortunately I hadn't been back in LA that long. I don't have the strongest community here cause I've been so transient. Um, so I really didn't have okay. anybody who was in a position to isolate and really be like an active part of a support system. So, so, you know, overall my first trimester was relatively normal from, you know, from what we knew at the time. Um, I definitely had morning sickness. I definitely hot flashes were the biggest thing for me that I would just all of a sudden start sweating. Um, I also was super limited for the first time. I wasn't the boss of my body. It was very clear that our mm -hmm. baby was in charge. And, you know, I, I was trying to entertain myself in ISO by teaching myself dance pole. 
Um, so I would go out in the yard and I would get just a little bit excited. And I definitely am somebody who pushes myself that, oh, I think I can do it just a little bit better. Or, oh, I want to do it one more time and make it happen more perfectly on the music or whatever. And I learned really quickly that while pregnant, if I, uh, if I pushed myself that one step too far, then I would make myself super sick. And I would end up laying on the couch, mm. staring at the ceiling, uh, you know, hoping that I wasn't going to throw up. Um, So that was wild for me because I think for so many of us in, you know, the extreme arts and the physical crafts that being able to push your body and be the boss of your body is something we take for granted. So that was a huge lesson. Um, At the same time, one thing that was really cool about that is that on the days that I could work, when I could find an hour that I was strong and powerful and whatever, it felt, I felt like a superhero um, that I was in the process Mm. of creating a human while, you know, spinning around a pole, going upside down, making choreography. So that was really joyful. Yeah. Um, again, it was hard because isolation was hard and my partner was working. So I was, you know, actually kind of on my own with all of my hormones and my experience uh, every day. But we were good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, again, my husband makes video games and he has awesome insurance. So we have kick-ass doctors. And, uh, finally the day comes around that we are going to go and see the heartbeat. We're at, I guess, 10, 11 weeks at this point. Um, okay. And we go in, um, and we go in and he's not allowed in the building because COVID and this is still a super intense time, right? That it was only, only really critical medical stuff. Um, so we go in and we do the ultrasound and, um, and that is, of course, when life changed. And P.S., you know, we were going to go on a date that day. That was going to be our first time. We were going to go have lunch outside somewhere in Malibu. And I was wearing a dress and whatever. And like literally that was the day that we intended to tell the world. And instead, you know, my partner was banned to a parking lot somewhere in Beverly Hills. Uh, and my doc was kind uh. enough to let us be on FaceTime when we found out that there was no heartbeat. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. So I will never, ever take for granted again any opportunity that I'm allowed to have support by my side. Because uh, what followed was basically, oh. was a lot of getting dropped off outside of hospitals um, and and managing a lot of stuff. So that's, that's part one, basically. Uh, the really oh, yeah, yeah. super heart-wrenching part of that um, I'm not sure, probably most people aren't familiar with the concept of a missed miscarriage. Missed miscarriage. I am not. I don't know what that Copy. is. So a uh, fascinating thing, terrible thing to go through, but really interesting. So essentially what happened to me um, is that we had actually lost the baby much earlier. And I don't know how much earlier, but my body absolutely did not understand that and was completely carrying on with the pregnancy. So we were at the point oh. that like my baby bump was starting to show. Um you know, I had really intense morning sickness. I had, I mean, not really intense morning sickness. I had legitimate morning sickness, sickness, pretty normal. Um, hot flashes and the whole thing. Like I had full pregnancy symptoms, um, and this baby belly. Um, but you know, my, my child had been gone for a while and my body showed absolutely no signs of stopping. And so, um, So that is a psychological nightmare because academically you have this information I've seen, you know, I have seen that there is no heartbeat, 
I have seen that there is no Uh life. Um, I have seen that our child is gone. Um, And, you know, there's no question about that, except for the fact that biology is really smart. And biology makes you a mom long before you give birth. Biology, you know, is feeding you all of these hormones and all of these things and causing you, you know, um, giving you the ability to connect with your child much, much earlier than you actually get to meet them. Um, So it's just the wildest thing because my body is just shouting at me that the baby is coming. And, um, but academically, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that the baby is not coming. And through this, uh, you know, we, when people miscarry, there are a couple options, you know, if you find out that you don't have a heartbeat. Um, One is a DNC, um, and that's uh, dilation and curettage, which is, it's essentially, you know, not trigger warning just to, to state it as it is. It's essentially like an abortion procedure, except that there's no life. Um, but the, the mechanics are very similar as to where they, they have to go in and remove what they call the products of conception. And that's a surgical procedure that you're not all the way, um, they don't knock you out for completely, completely, but it's very heavily sedated. Um, Mm. so, you know, we opted for that because my body did not understand that, uh, that the pregnancy wasn't viable. So my body was determined, determined, you know, like with all the acrobatic tenacity that I've ever shown. Yeah. Hanging on to that. Um, was definitely not going to be the department that shut down the show. We'll put it that way. So, uh, so we opted to do the DNC and again, that was COVID times. So, um, so my partner had to drop me off outside the hospital. Uh, <laughs> I had to go through all that again, you know, and, and with all of that, like just there's so many flashes and moments of like just being horrendously drugged up and going through awful trauma, you know, like um, just miserable. Right. You know, like these are, these are some of the darkest days of my life in that period of time. Um yeah, I can't. I cannot imagine. I can't. Yeah, it's rough. Can't. I mean, do you remember? Do you remember what you felt in connection to your baby at the end of the first trimester? Yes, yes. But I don't know. It's so it's so interesting for me in my brain to separate that from how it felt in the second and third, and now that she's, you know, mm-hmm. almost two. Sure. I, I don't know how to even like I, I you'd have to call me back in like a week yeah. for an answer on that, I think. To be able to kind of place yourself in space and time as to where yeah. that was. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like sitting here gutted, but it, I think it's gonna take me a while to digest what you've already told me. And this is part one. Yeah, it gets pretty rough. <laughs> let's uh let's move along. Chapter two. Yeah. The miscarriage okay. shit show from hell. Um so, so all of that happened, uh, and we went through the recovery process after the DNC and, um, you know, and we'll call it the normal grief of what, of what miscarriage brings for a family who, you know, who really wanted this child, had planned for this child, had, you know, prepared yeah. and all of that. And there's a lot to navigate there in terms of understanding, you know, where the nursery isn't going to be. And you've already kind of given over your heart and your life. And in my case, you know, my career, right? Like I, I had left my shows and whatever to, to make this happen. And so that was kind of a secondary set of losses and things to navigate just that, um, 
you know, that I was also, I was also not with my community in Vegas. I was also not in a position that I could throw myself into work, which is how I've normally coped with things. So it's still pandemic time and we are home and I'm in ISO and I'm, you know, I'm, things just aren't getting normal. Things aren't coming back. My cycle's not coming back. And eventually I go back to see my doctor. Um, oh no, eventually, eventually I did a pregnancy test and I tested positive, but there was no possible way that I was pregnant. Um, so I was still testing positive and essentially what was happening because your hormones were mm -hmm. high, your pregnancy yeah. hormones were high. Okay. My HCG was just, it never left. So my body, so I liken it to this basically, right? Like I had, I had to do a lot of processing to kind of be able to wrap my head around this whole experience. So I imagine it's something like this. So you have these departments that are putting together a show and you have the artistic department of the dancers and the singers and the choreographers and the directors, and they're offsite rehearsing in some warehouse somewhere, you know? And I think of that as like life. <laughs> and then you have the department that's building the theater. Um, and then you have this other department that's doing admin, that's sending out messages, that's sending out messages, that's sending out messages. And it's like one by one, what was happening in my body is that, you know, just certain departments were not getting the message. So the first was that there was no longer life, you know, rehearsal stopped, everybody left. It was sad. It was heartbreaking, you know, but they were still building the theater. There was still this department, this infrastructure that was just hammering away um, with my body, building a baby bump and, you know, all of this stuff. And then I had surgery and we were able to get the message finally to that department. But then somewhere in my body was this little, someone somewhere in an office where the lights had been shut off was this sweet little administrative character, just still sending messages desperately determined that we were going to have this baby. And it was basically mm. in one way, that's so beautiful, right? Like so many women who experience miscarriage, struggle deeply because they feel like their body failed them, but like my body would not quit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I stayed quote unquote pregnant with full pregnancy symptoms for another trimester. <laughs> um, wow. So wow. Right. So that was a thing. Oh, okay. So you took a pregnancy test. You realize your pregnancy hormones are still high. Mm -hmm. And so what does one do after that? Like, how does the doctor deal with that? Uh, we just kind of go into, we then get to the territory where they're like, okay, so you're definitely an outlier. Too much time has passed. This shouldn't be the case, but you know, it's not that it doesn't ever happen. It's just, it's very unusual. Uh, so I started doing HCG blood tests every week and you know, literally for months, literally for months, I was still quote unquote pregnant with pregnancy symptoms and you know, still in ISO, still trying to go outside and work on my poles sometimes, but still getting too sick and having to lie down and uh, all of the. Oh my god! Uh -huh. Oh my god! Oh my god! This is. It didn't go well, Carrie. Horrific. <laughs> this is horrific. That's part two. Because the only thing that makes morning sickness okay is that you know that you're pregnant. Exactly. That's the only thing that makes it okay. Yeah, it's like oh being an God. athlete, you're willing to do all this stuff that's painful and comfortable and yeah. hard because you're trying to achieve a goal, right? Like yeah. nobody loves yeah. tearing up the top of their feet for a toe hang, but you do it because it's worth it. Um, but in my case, you know- oh. I don't do that because it's worth it. <laughs> I don't need it. I'm like, that's not in the category of worth uh -huh. it. But anyways, just trying to be a little lighter in this. Oh my God. Yeah, there's not a lot of levity. I mean, I could try to tell you. No, the, there doesn't need to be. 
There doesn't need to be. So that's chapter two, basically, is uh, that's literally up until Thanksgiving. So we got we got pregnant in June um, and then trimester one, then surgery. And then the next trimester was um, all the all the unfun of pregnancy with absolutely no reward whatsoever. Um, no payoff. At no all. payoff. Yeah. And the other okay. thing too, is there's a huge amount of emotional complexity because again, biology is smart and you don't become a mother in an instant. Um, and so we're just in very active grief. You know, I'm just living at that time in very active grief where, uh, there's no way really to step outside of it because I'm, I'm sick. I'm unwell. Um, and you're isolated. Yep. I mean, that time was hard on almost everyone and then you add all this in oh my god like that is a yeah and like my family is literally there's an ocean between us and it was rough I mean it was super super rough um I had a lot I had a lot to learn as far as how to heal myself and you know in a lot of ways just survive just to survive through this process so at that point we're uh six months in and finally things start to get a little back to normal. I have a couple months where like I sort of have a, it sort of looked like things are getting back on track or trying to reboot. Um, I finally, finally around Thanksgiving, uh, get a negative pregnancy test. So about six months into this disaster, um, you know, we get some hope. Not even your period, just a negative yeah. pregnancy uh, test. So not even your and period. And then pretty soon following that, like something that, you know, was like, we're really trying to have a cycle. Uh, so we got around there around the same time period. So sure. At that point, things get a little bit normal. You know, we start trying and whatever. So we're going through the process. We're doing all the thing. We're TDC and and POAS and blah, 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 and all the acronyms. Uh, and it starts to get hard because basically, you know, things just never quite get all the way normal, but I feel okay ish, but it's like my body's learned these new tricks where suddenly the second half of my cycle, um, I start to get nauseous and we start to joke about it. And in our house, it's like queasy became something else and eventually it became Quiznos. Um, and just all these code words. Cause we <laughs> were just living, we were just living in this constant loss, you know, and just, I, I, my body was still acting strangely. And as time went on, I had a couple months of like a little bit of relief, but it's almost like, you know, you get through ovulation and you do all the stuff you're supposed to, and you try to conceive. And then it comes around toward time to take a pregnancy test. And I, my symptoms just keep shooting up and I start getting full fledged pregnancy symptoms, full fledged. So every month it's like, we're trying and then wow. there's hope and then the test is negative and then we're trying and then I get morning sickness and then the test is negative. And so it's like, we just keep losing this child over and over every month. Um, okay. Wait, wait. So you're saying that you're having chemical pregnancies. Not really. Months in a row. I mean, we really can't tell what's going on at that point. Like at that point, I'm just sick, right? Like, At that point, something's just wrong, but it's timed with my cycle where like my body temperature goes up. It's probably acting like a chemical pregnancy, um, though I don't think that's technically what was going on. uh, Because again, there's part three, unfortunately. Um, But it's probably roughly like that to where like my body, my basal temperature would stay up longer than it was supposed to. And then it started staying up through my cycles, which didn't make any sense. And then we started getting to the point where um, around the time that my cycle was supposed to start, I would get morning sickness so badly that I threw up. <laughs> um, 
so it really, really, really looked like I was pregnant. Um, and I never was, um, I never was, and I was still sick. So psychologically this was rough. Cause again, we're still in ISO at this point. Oh yeah. Uh, and eventually nobody's going to want to listen to this. It's just sad. Oh my God. No, no, no. This is like, I'm on the edge of my seat right now. And you're just such, you're just such a brave woman. I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, the fact that women around the world in our community are going to be able to hear this and you're not the only one who has experienced Mm -hmm. this. We did get to a point at one point where it looked like, (laughs) where it literally looked like what was going on with me was a medical anomaly that like the literature was like, we've seen 90 cases of it ever in the history of medical documentation. Uh, But it turned out not to be that. So moving on to phase three, we finally eventually get to a point that I'm like, doc, I, I'm not well. There are all these crazy things that are happening to my body. It literally just doesn't make any sense. Uh, so we move in and then we do surgery number two, which is an outpatient procedure uh, called a hysteroscopy. Uh, that is not a hysterectomy. Uh, a hysteroscopy is just um, basically an exploration of the inside of your uterus. Um, it's super not fun. They basically, um, you know, put a tube through your cervix into your uterus. And then, you know, some nurse just squeezes super hard on an IV bag to fill it up with fluid so that they're able to see everything. Um, okay. And then they do a music video camera shoot of the inside of your uterus uh, and cruise around and look at everything. And essentially um, what they found in me was a large kind of, well, I mean, largest relative, but they found a session, section of tissue that had turned to bone, basically. Um, what? Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's what I said. Um, so essentially, I'm, it's hard to even know exactly how to tell the story in a way that makes sense. So let's flash forward to, mm-hmm. uh, let's flash forward to the next surgery, which was, um, just about two months ago now. So we're just kind of, I thought I was healed from that. Things are, are not quite back on track yet. So we're still kind of in month 14 of my pregnancy. Um, but what ended up happening is that we did, uh, finally, finally like full anesthesia, finally, like a whole legit surgical center, finally, we're far enough along in COVID and we're vaccinated and my partner doesn't have to, you know, pick me up at a wheelchair right. on the sidewalk this time, <laughs> um, which I cannot tell you how much I appreciated just literally being able to have my partner, um, for surgery number three, like just in the waiting room with me, <laughs> just to be able to say I'm scared and to have him sit with me was, um, after the last two was really good. And again, I wasn't, For the last two, I hadn't been completely, uh, put under. So I was, I was there, you know, I was there and it was really painful. Yeah. Yeah. So we're starting to get to a point by surgery number three of, um, understandably being pretty anxious about what's about to happen. Uh, but this one went really well. And at the end of the day, finally, uh, pathology came back and what they removed was something like a, it was like three centimeters by one centimeter of um, tissue from my pregnancy. So basically my body had just never, ever let go. Um, and that it was psychologically really difficult, um, you know. Oh, I see. So essentially the tissue that had stayed in my body over time, um, kind of in a, it's, 
it's complicated to talk about it because it's so, so ugly um, what happened. But in one way, there's something that's really beautiful. And that's that it's really unsafe to have tissue in your body that's dying. Um, yeah. And yeah. That, Infection. Exactly. Right? Like that can be really toxic and, you know, really unhealthy um, for a variety of reasons. So it's not really that much of a mystery as to why I was so sick for so long. Um, but essentially, you know, that there, there is part of this that is so hard to swallow because as, as a mother who only got partway through the process, um, mm-hmm. we're just going to take a quick breath so that I can breathe and say words. Um, but as a mother mm-hmm. who's been partway through the process, you can't go through what I went through um, without at some point saying basically to your baby, um, just stay, you know, I don't want you to go. <laughs> and then mm. when you find out literally, literally a year later that they stayed um, and made you sick and in a really fascinating and also totally horrifying reality, um, the tissue from my pregnancy literally became an IUD. Um, like literally became uh, an object inside of my uterus that was causing secondary infertility. So, um, yeah. So does that make sense? Basically that. Yeah, it, it, it really, it does make sense, but I'm like, my mouth is on the floor. Isn't that wild? I didn't even know that this was even a possibility. Me neither. I mean, I was in the middle of it without knowing that this is a possibility. Um, and what does the doctor say? Like how many of these have they seen? It is super uncommon, but not unheard of. Um, and I think that there are different variations of what this can look like. Uh-huh. Um, but for sure, okay. let's just say that when I email my doctor, I get a response, <laughs> you know, um, that we definitely, we have definitely become partners kind of in healthcare through all of this because none of it has been predictable. None of it has made sense. And he definitely isn't like, he's not like, oh yeah, I have other patients going through this. It's more like, you know, maybe he's seen it. Maybe, maybe he has witnessed this at another time, but it's definitely some pretty outlier stuff, you know? So as the rest of my life, um, you know, my pregnancy journey definitely kind of took its own, took its own path, like took its own very creative path. And we hope, we hope that that's the end of that, you know? So were you having pain with your periods that were, was undescribable? Like, were you, like, were you having crazy cramping when your uterus was getting rid of that lining? No. Um, if anything, if anything, it's like, as far as my periods, they were super underwhelming, like just not really working correctly and not looking right. And all of that. Okay. Um, I think it's, is it called amenorrhea? I've learned so many words through this whole process. I don't know these words. Um, I don't know these but words. Basically like underperforming zero out of five stars, you know, kind of like functioning maybe not zero maybe like one or two stars um but just not really functioning like it never really returned correctly um so the uterus never really returned correctly to like a non-pregnancy state and mm -hmm. so your hormone levels were also just confused so they just go up and down that's actually hard to understand because there doesn't seem to be any indication um 
that my HCG stayed up or that my other hormones were necessarily off. So there's still a little bit of a mystery within that for me. And again, like some of this is recent enough that I probably just don't understand all the ins and outs of it yet. Um, because it's not something that there's like a Facebook group for like anybody else doing well in their 14th month of a failed pregnancy. Like it's just, it's not something that I really yeah. have a lot of resources to be able to easily ask questions about and easily get a lot of information. Um, but I think kind of the short version and what I understand up to now is that um, there is a word that stuck out of my head, probably the most traumatic of phase three of all of this. Um, and that word was necrotized, like the tissue and um, tissue, AKA being from the pregnancy, uh, Mm-hmm. was it it died and necrotized, which is the process that the tissue goes through um, and then eventually calcified. And through all of that, in some ways, you know, uh, that couldn't have been good for me. Um, and so who knows whether it was hormones that were making me sick or whether it was something else. Who knows, you know, who knows at what point in the pregnancy it stopped being hormones that were making me sick and started being something else. So it's just one big continuous line of 14 months, literally this, like, as, as we passed her due date, that was a milestone that had to be managed. Um, as we passed the anniversary, you know, like, I don't even know how to address that, but like the anniversary of the beginning of this. And at some point along the line, you know, like I named her, her name is Aspen because, I, because the biggest painful part about this, I've done so many uncomfortable, painful things in my life. You know, I'm an, I'm an acrobat slash stunt woman slash whatever, you know, I have tattoos, I have scarifications, piercings, and body modifications. Um, it was never the pain of this physically that was hard. Um, it was the complete disorientation in my body, but more than anything, just the fact that when you are in the process of becoming a mother, um, you love your child. Uh, you love your child and grief is basically love that no longer has a target or a place to go. And I didn't really have any, I didn't have any outlets that I could pour myself into um, that could distract me from that. Oh my God. So, you know, so basically like I went from being this world traveling juggernaut running departments um, to just being a full-time grieving mom somewhere in a process, you know, and that changed me. Yeah. Isolated, (laughs) isolated by yourself. And, and then also I'm thinking, you know, we're so used to being so in touch with our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, you were so in touch with yourself and this is also confusing, but then during that second tier of things, your body is doing things that you can't understand. I don't even know what that feels like to be like, to not know absolutely what's happening for that amount of time 100% for that long. and then phase 3 basically you know people will say things like and everybody's well meaning that's the thing sometimes you just have to take a deep breath um people say a lot of dumb stuff in miscarriage um mm. and they really really mean well but um you know, there was actually probably some blessings and being isolated because I, I didn't have to interact when I didn't feel up to it. And I didn't have to yeah. uh, kind of receive some of the asinine uh, comments and help that I've heard from other people who have gone through miscarriage when, when they haven't had the choice to be able to share or not share. Um, but 
I lost track of my thought a little bit. Sorry, we're on some emotional topics. No, you were, you were talking <laughs> about unsolicited unsolicited Hello, yeah. advice and comments, which half terrible, terrible. Yeah, and I mean, people do that to mothers as well. You know, people do that in pregnancy yeah. and motherhood and parenting and grandparenting. People love, people love to oh, they do, do They do, and I definitely, for the most part, people were pretty cool. Um but there was certainly some of the, you know, maybe if you just relax, it'll happen for you. Or um, or when I was complaining about being sick and unwell and that these symptoms were coming up and people, um, other women feeling like, you know, maybe that's, maybe it's just that you don't really remember what, um, what PMS feels like or what your cycle feels like or whatever. And if there's one thing that I have to be pretty confident in, um, you know, with 20 years of an acrobatic career, it's that my ability to read my body and understand what its capacities mm-hmm. are is usually really sharp. Yep. It's one of my greater yeah, strengths yeah. is, is my ability to know that I can do something or can't do something or estimate what percentage of capacity I have available for work today or, or any of that. And I, I knew something was wrong. Um, and there had been a strange time because during this period of time where I was getting full-fledged pregnancy symptoms and dealing with the kind of psychological reality of all of this hope and then just that coming crashing down all the time, I would get the impression that I was pregnant, have really strong, you know, scientifically based evidence that I was pregnant. Um, and the weirdest thing would happen that my brain would try to jump over the loss and my brain would try to be like, everything's okay. Aspen's back, you know? And I would be like, whoa, like this is super unhealthy for me. Um, that mm. we all have coping mechanisms, but delusion has never been something that my brain has jumped to. You know, I've always usually been pretty scientifically or fact-based um, in kind of my coping mechanisms. But I kept having this thing that would feel like, you know, like, oh, Aspen's back, Aspen's back. Um and I would mentally try to do exercises and be like, man, I, I will try to take you and wrap you in a little ball of light and take you out of my womb and put you over my shoulder, you know, as a big sister and guardian, but I need you to make space for this next pregnancy. And, um, there was a certain mm. amount of vindication, both from, you know, all of the, all of the well-meaning kind of, oh, you just don't understand your body and that kind of stuff uh, to find out that, you know, my part of my pregnancy was in fact still there. That quite literally um, the reason I couldn't get pregnant is because, because part of Aspen's pregnancy was still there and had literally become infused to my body, had become a part of me in like a permanent fashion if I hadn't had the surgery. Um, and so that felt in one way, obviously it was horrifying, but in another way, it was great to know that as an acrobat and somebody who is in tune with my body, that I was not a crazy person, that, um, I was just experiencing something medically really rare that sucked. Um, but that I hadn't actually, I mean, how would you even, how would you, how would you even like, I am, my jaw is on the floor. Mm -hmm. Like I've never even like heard about this. Ever. Me neither. I am. Me neither. I, I don't even know what to say. Like, and, and, um, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so sorry. The whole, the whole thing, like the amount of, um, emotional fortitude and just emotional story you must've gone through with the pandemic, with the isolation, uh, like, it's been <laughs> I don't even know. traumatizing. It's been pretty traumatizing, but yeah, there. Um, I would not wish this for anybody. I am 
understandably afraid of what lies in our future, you know, next time that we're able to get pregnant and just hoping, hoping whatever it is that I'm to take away and grow from this experience and learn has already been achieved. Cause I, I definitely, I definitely am not signing up for another round of this, but I am, I am willing to go through it. I am willing to go through taking the chance, you know, um, because I want to be a parent, um, because my partner wants to be a dad, and because we we love Aspen, you know, we love our we love our daughter, and we're never going to get to meet her. Um, but that doesn't change. And uh, for anybody who has gone through miscarriage or child loss of any kind, like you know, it's okay to keep loving your kid. And one thing that was really positive for me is that my family, um, growing up, my mom had experienced miscarriage, and there was a child lost between my sister and I. And they had never hidden that from us. Um, And there was some occasion annually that somebody sold roses and they would buy one for every member of the family. And there was always an extra one. And that was for Mm. Molly, which was the the child that never came between uh, my sister and I. And so I had a framework, which I think was really helpful for me. I had a framework that one, um, if if Molly had come, if that child had come, there's a really good chance I would not have. Their family would have been complete without me. Um, so, you know, so for me, there's a reality that I am here partially because um, there was child loss in my family. And two, I am a rainbow baby. You know, I, I am the living proof that there is life after child loss. Um, and mm-hmm. definitely I'm a dynamic character in my family. I'm sure, you know, they can't, they can't imagine somebody else being there. Um, that wasn't me. I'm definitely, you know, a dynamic part of their story. Um, and I think that was really helpful because I didn't have to come from a place of, you know, overcoming society shame in admitting that I was going through this, that this had happened to me, that I was coping with this or talking about what the feelings are. Um, and I think that's really positive and, you know, and now I, I hope that by sharing, we can open up the conversation a little bit more, understand that there is a great deal of complexity into what can be part of somebody's, you know, fertility journey. Um, and hopefully for me, you know, it's healing. I think that when we tend to keep things bottled up and hidden that, um, that we give them power and, um, I think it's okay. I think it's okay that this has changed me. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. and it's uncomfortable and I hate it. I hate how delicate I feel. I hate how raw my mm-hmm. emotions are and how close to the surface. Um, my grief lives because I've been, I've been sitting so actively in it for about 14 months now. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you ignore the other side of it, which is that, you know, my partner and I, we, we were long distance. And then I was, you know, for a year when I was in Vegas and then I was gone six months out of the year on the other side of the world. And then we just spent hundreds and hundreds of days together, locked in the same house, going through hell. And I learned that my partner is enough. You know, I learned that I have a partner who has the emotional fortitude and intelligence um, to be there through hell and back. And that when I break and I fall apart and I don't have the strength that he can hold me, that he can prop me up. And I've never been somebody who's been easily willing to accept that. So Mm. there's a lot, there's a lot 
to grow from in every shit show. And I just hope, I hope that ultimately what I take away from this is a gentler way to be with myself, um, more willingness to make space to sit with grief and heal instead of try to throw myself into work and dominate something else. Um, and that ultimately I hope that this makes me a better mom when I get the chance to be. Oh my God. Um, I feel like the audience out there, whoever decides to pick up this podcast and listen to it, they've just been gifted. Um, like it's just, it's an incredible story of bravery and perseverance and the fact that you just had to sit in it and we're still in the pandemic. This is not over, you know, like you're still in the middle of your journey. And, um, I, yeah, I'm just really, you know, proud of you. (laughs) We don't know each other that well. Um, we're in the same community and I'm just over and over and over just so impressed with the people around me and their character. Yeah. We have a lot of wonderful people. I love circus people. I really do that. They're, there's so much to be said for the community that we have, like, you know, slightly lighter topic for a moment, but in the world of freelancers and people that gallivant around our little world, um, you can just say to somebody, you know, like I remember having a situation where I needed to travel out of the country. I dropped my dog off with, you know, a, literally a showgirl in Vegas who was going to look after him. And then my flight to my next job was bringing him back to LA instead of Vegas or whatever it was. My dog was in Vegas. I was back in LA. Um, and I remember just posting on Facebook and being like, uh, you know, who from the circus community is coming back from, um, Vegas to LA in the coming days. And somebody literally was like, oh, well, I have to be at the Turkish embassy in LA on Thursday at 9am and I'll pick up your dog and blah, 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 blah. And just like, we have this world where we are such a flexible community that sees each other and tries to show up for each other that you can literally just have somebody deliver you, your dog to the Turkish embassy. Um, and it's not that weird. Like it's totally fine. Or like we borrow costumes yeah. or we teach each other things or we give each other private lessons when we have to do something. We're not that confident at, at a job. And, um, and I really love that. And that's the one thing that, you know, I've found that as time has gone on and especially through all of this, like my identity and sense of self is no longer completely tied up in being a performer. Um, but that mm. I do very, very much cherish the circus community and the aerial community and that I hope in whatever the next iteration of my life is um, when I choose to finally step off the stage full time or I choose to stop traveling so much and do less work in production and in theaters um, that I hope that I find anything half as cool as the circus community. Yeah. Oh, Erica, thank you so much for, for being vulnerable and sharing. Um, I feel like there's a ripple effect with these stories and we're going to, and you're going to touch somebody that you'll never know. You yeah. Know? I hope you'll never know. Hopefully somebody feels seen or heard. Um, I will kind of close yeah. sort of just with a statement that anybody who has listened this long, um, I'm not necessarily looking for advice. Um, mm-hmm. I have such a unique and complicated situation. It's been such a mess that, I think it is hard for people to know how to support through these things. And I, I don't think that we're in a situation that anybody can solve for us right now. 
Um, mm. And so if there's anything that you want to share with me, if you've gone through something similar, please feel free to find me online and, you know, let's be each other's support systems through this. Um, I want anybody who, who has something they'd like to share about that to feel seen and heard um, while at the same time, a little bit setting a boundary that this is still really raw for me and that I don't necessarily need an inbox full of teas that people recommend for fertility. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I would say, I've said this on this podcast before, like unsolicited advice should just stay the fuck away because no one likes it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not, it's not, it never gets received the way you want somebody to receive it. For the most part, I would say 99.9% of the totally. time from what I've heard. It's yeah. such a yeah. way that we try to love each other and we really do. And yeah. I'm guilty of it just like everybody else is. Um, I just know that I have been in a situation for a long time now where it's like we've had to draw over and over from a well without having as much ability to fill it. And that has required me a little bit to be more thoughtful about, about boundaries and like, how much energy I have for, for yeah. being polite when I really am, am wounded and going through other things. Um, and that's been a huge transition. You know, I've always tried to be more of a person that's bulletproof. And I think I really believed that I was for a long time. It's not so bad to not be bulletproof and it's not so bad to be vulnerable and to be open and to be honest. Um, and also it's usually okay to kind of respectfully ask for what you need uh, from people in terms of, you know, when I shared about my miscarriage initially, I made a little infographic that said, hey, when you say these things, it's hard for me and I don't receive them very well. When you say these things, um, I feel supported and I do receive them well. And I found that 100% of people who um, were generous enough to reach out with support um, took the time to take those things to heart. And I really appreciated that, the opportunity to be able to say, um, this lands as support for me and this doesn't. Um, and to have, and to find out that my community was willing to love me in a way that I could really receive. I want to give a big thank you to Erica for your bravery and just, you're just the strongest, most badass woman ever. I am so blessed to call you a friend and a colleague. And I hope everyone out there maybe this will make you feel seen and heard if you've gone through something, something like what she went through. Thank you so much for being here. As I talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, there's a free gift for you guys in my show notes. Go ahead and click there. You can easily register for a username to get onto the student portal of my website for a free mini course, 10 chapters of a bunch of interesting stuff. I really hope that you take advantage of that and I would love to be your virtual teacher. Thanks to Asa Watkins for post-production. And if you would honor me with a five-star rating and review anywhere you get your podcasts, it really helps our community find this podcast easier. And thanks for being here. I really appreciate you guys. You've been listening to the Expecting Aerialist Podcast. Oh, 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 oh,